Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rock. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. On this week's special edition of Berkeley Rocks, the Nobel Prizes. That's right. We'll be talking about the Nobel Prizes in physics, chemistry, and medicine. Joining us to talk about the prize in physiology is our very own Professor John Nye. In addition, Mark Weiss from Caltech will join us to discuss the prize in physics. And finally, Randy Sheckman here from Berkeley will talk about the prize in chemistry. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week coming right up here on Berkeley Grog. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Actually, uh, I'm pretty happy this week. Are you pretty happy? Yeah. How are you feeling? Like a Nobel Prize winner. <laughs> okay. I was thinking you were going to feel noble somewhat. But, yes. Uh, well, it's an exciting time of uh, year every year when uh, Nobel Prizes are awarded, so it's quite fascinating. Aren't you glad you're a scientist now? <laughs> well, I'd be glad if I'd won the actual prize, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't it a little sad that none of the headline news actually carries the Nobel Prize in their front it's pages very anymore? Very rarely. I think uh, the main ones are just usually the Nobel Prize in physics and uh, economics. Are usually, but you know they're too busy covering important things like you know the uh, Lacey Peterson trial. Oh yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> and there's like an election going on. I heard. <laughs> yeah, something like that. But it's kind of odd. But um, you know it is certainly important. That's why we covered here on Grox, right? Hey, we're all winners, huh? That's right, <laughs> and that's the best kind of winning, as our friend Will Wheaton said last week. So, what's your uh, favorite prize this year? I don't know. They're all pretty good prizes. I mean, uh, the one in in uh, medicine was a bit of a surprise for smell. The smell. Oh, that's right, smell. I'm I'm sure it will have some therapeutic uses at some point, but <laughs> <laughs> at least for the perfumers. <laughs> what about you? I thought the uh, the kiss of death prize was good. The uh, whole idea of identifying the mechanism by which cells kill bad proteins. You know, smell can also be the kiss of death. So uh, it all depends on the odor. <laughs> yeah, so uh, you know, you gotta wear the right perfume. Huh? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, I mean, it's all pretty fascinating stuff. Of course, the physics prize was quite fascinating as well. With oh, the uh, theory of everything. The theory of everything, or at least uh, the strong nuclear force. Uh-huh. Which uh, I guess led to the theory of everything. Quite fascinating. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, no, I guess not really surprising to me. I guess all these things really deserved it. No controversies like last year. <laughs> <laughs> the NMR stuff. Yeah, uh, nobody taking out a full page ad protesting. <laughs> what was his name? Damadian, I guess. Damadian, yeah. Yeah, he's a little bitter. Just a little bit, but it'll be pretty fascinating. So uh, coming up on the program, we've got a, a number of guests joining us to discuss uh, the Nobel prizes here. Indeed, indeed. First up, we'll have uh, John Nye, who'll join us by phone to discuss the Nobel prize in uh, medicine. Right. Right, and then we have uh, Professor Mark Weiss from Caltech, right? Right, and so that'll be quite fun to have him talk about physics, right? And, of course, uh, the Chemistry Prize, which is awarded today, and uh, Randy Sheckman, I think, will call in. So, uh, yeah, stay tuned for all that, and uh, we'll bring you all the latest updates on Nobel Prize Week here on Grox. Here we come.
this year's Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine was awarded to Richard Axel and Linda Buck for their work in understanding the biological mechanisms for smell. Joining us today to tell us a little bit about this is Professor John Nye here from the University of California at Berkeley campus. Uh, Professor Nye, thanks for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks. Yes, thank you. So first of all, could you explain what the prize was awarded for? Well, the prize was awarded for a a truly seminal discovery, which was... um a beautiful experimental approach, which was brilliantly conceived by Linda Buck in 1991 when she was working with Richard Axel. And what, what the experiment allowed her to do was for the very first time to identify the molecular identity of the, pro- of the genes encoding the proteins for the odor receptors. So, so more simply put, what Buck and Axel were able to do was to identify the long sought after olfactory receptors. And the reason why that's so interesting is because we've known for many, many years, probably hundreds of years, that the human nose can detect and discriminate thousands of different odors. And these are really just chemicals that our olfactory system can detect. And we really had no understanding of the, the nature of, of the processes that happen in the nose and in the brain that allow that to happen. Although for many years we also sus- suspected that what, what underlies that phenomenon must be some kind of receptor protein, something that actually receives a signal and turns that recognition of chemicals into a neural signal, a signal that the nervous system can decode. So the identification of these receptors, of which there are upwards of a thousand in some mammals, maybe about 300 in humans, really allowed us to understand how we can actually detect so many different chemicals with such a great degree of precision. And what implications does this have for future research in biology? Well, it allow- what, what the discovery did was several things. First, it gave us the first insights into how this great molecular sensor, the nose, actually accomplishes the feat of teasing apart uh, the chemistry of what's out there in the environment. But what it really also did is it gave us the tools to start dissecting apart this part of the nervous system to understand how it works. Right there, traditionally, we, we always hear about the five senses, of which olfaction or smell is one of them. And until this discovery, we really had... We had many ideas about how to think about how the system worked, but we had, it was really a mystery to us how this, this sensory system worked. The, the mysteries of vision and color vision had been unlocked decades before, uh, and so on and so forth. Hearing the general principles had largely been understood, uh, but here in the sense of smell, it really remained a mystery, and what this allows us to do now is to really dig down and understand it at a very fundamental level. And, you know, we're really still at the very beginning of the field, but this discovery had just a profound effect on understanding the sensory biology of the olfactory system. Just to clarify things, does each receptor detect one particular smell or a uh, combination? Well, it, it probably works much more complicated than that. Probably what happens is that unlike, say, the lock and key mechanism that many people associate, for example, with antibody uh, antigen interactions, uh, each, each receptor for smells probably um, detects a range of chemical structures. And so the way that we detect so many different kinds of smells out there is probably anytime you smell, uh, say, lemon in the environment or lime or jasmine, probably the, the chemicals that are in those smells interact, each of those chemicals probably interacts with a number of different receptors, and it's that combination of receptors that are activated that tells you what you're smelling. It's been said that smell is the sense that people have the strongest memory for. Uh, is there a particular reason for that? Um, I suppose one could think about many reasons. Uh, if one looks back teleologically, uh, <coughs> back through evolution, uh, the sense of smell is actually quite important for survival in terms of finding mates for reproduction. In other words, uh, for detecting uh, predators, 
or pray for eating, or for knowing when food, for example, has been spoiled. So one might imagine that the, since the sense of smell has been so fundamentally important for an animal's survival over, over evolution, and the humans are probably an exception to that, uh, it's perhaps not too surprising that olfactory-based memories are very deeply ingrained when they're made. I'm just curious here, are you familiar with any of the two researchers? Uh, yes. Uh, I worked very closely with them for a number of years. Uh, at the time that uh, Linda Buck was doing this work in Dr. Axel's lab, I was also a postdoctoral fellow in the lab, and, and therefore uh, Dr. Axel was my mentor. Wow, and what was it like working for him? Uh, he's a brilliant man. It was just terrific. I learned, I learned a lot from him. Um, his process, uh, his way of approaching science, his, his logic and his methodology. It was, it was a real education. Well, Professor Nye, I just want to thank you for your comments today. Are there any last words you'd like to add? No, I think this is just a richly deserved prize. I'm very happy for both Linda and Richard, and that, that about sums it up. Okay, Professor Nye, thanks for your time, and thanks for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks. Sure. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, Hugh David Pollister has won the 2004 Nobel Prize in Physics for work he began as a graduate student on how the elementary particles known as quarks are bound together to form protons and neutrons of atomic nuclei. The announcement was made by the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. Joining us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss the, this prize is uh, Professor Mark Weiss from uh, Caltech. He's the McCone Professor of High Energy Physics. Professor Weiss, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. You're welcome. Well, I'm curious if you can explain maybe a little bit about what the science was behind today's Nobel Prize in Physics. What Pollitzer did, and, and independently Gross and Wilczek, was discover that the strong interactions have a rather peculiar property, the strong interactions of quarks, the things that bind them into the constituents of atoms, the neutrons and protons, has the unusual property that, in some sense, the force become weaker at shorter distances. And it was known from previous experiments that if a theory of the strong interactions was to be correct, it would have to have that property. People had done other experiments that showed that, and that interpretation was actually due to Bjorkane, who's up in the Bay Area, and partly due to Feynman as well. So people knew that the correct theory had to have that property, that the interactions actually became weaker at shorter distances. Mm -hmm. There was a candidate theory that people had sometimes mentioned for the strong interactions. It's actually got a funny name, quantum chromodynamics. And Pollitzer did a specific calculation that showed that this theory had that property called asymptotic freedom, that it's weaker at short distances and stronger than actually long distances. Mm -hmm. And this was a revolution in, in our understanding of nature. It really told us that this theory that they were working with was a candidate for the correct theory of the strong interactions, and indeed people then worked out many properties and became convinced, we're all convinced now that it's the correct theory. Mm. It also led to our ability to predict many properties of the strong interactions. When we collide protons, the constituent of nuclei, with each other and look at what comes out, when we do that at very high energy, we use their methods and results to understand that. That's crucial for other experiments. Like we are now building a huge experimental facility in Europe called the LHC. It costs many billions of dollars. And without understanding the theory of strong interactions, which was pioneered by uh, Gross, Wilczek, and Pollitzer, we wouldn't even know how to interpret the data that comes out of that experiment. Even though we're trying to learn about other interactions from that experiment, the fact that we're using protons means that we really do have to understand the strong interactions as well. 
And it's my understanding that this theory, the quantum chromodynamics, had a remarkable similarity to another theory, quantum electrodynamics. Right. It was built up a little bit in analogy with electrodynamics. Electrodynamics ends up has the, has the opposite property, that the force becomes stronger at short distances. And the difference really comes about because in electrodynamics, there's things like electrons, mm -hmm. which carry charge, and also there are antiparticles, positrons, which carry the opposite charge. Mm -hmm. And then there's also particles of light called photons. And in some sense, the electrons and protons interact through the photons, but the photons don't have any charge. And in quantum chromodynamics, this new theory of the strong interactions, the quarks and antiquarks are like the electrons and their antiparticles, the positrons. Something called gluons are like the photons, but the crucial difference is that the gluons actually have charge in this theory as well. Not electromagnetic charge, but the analog for this theory. And that made the dynamics different, which gave rise to this property. And it's my understanding that it also allowed the unification of the strong with the weak and the electromagnetic forces. Well, it was all put together in a theory called the standard model that has strong, weak, and electromagnetic interactions, and that's the pillar of modern uh, theoretical particle physics. And then there's a little bit more speculative things that we haven't verified experimentally mm -hmm. called grand unified theory, where the strong, weak, and electromagnetic interactions are all part of the same thing. And it also has bearing on these grand unified theories as well. Well, I'm sure you know Professor Pulitzer reasonably well, working with him in the same department. I'm curious, what are your opinions of him, and how do you feel like, about his uh, receiving the prize? Well, I, I'm thrilled for him and also for Gross and Wilczek. They made a truly great discovery. It revolutionized our field, and the Nobel Prize is well-deserved in this case. They're giants of the field. David Pulitzer I know a little better. He's my colleague here. He's a wonderful human being, and so it's even more delightful for me. Not to say that they're not wonderful human <laughs> beings, uh, Gross and Wilczek, but, uh, of course, David's my immediate colleague here. This work was actually done quite some time ago. Do you think it's maybe a little overdue? Well, sometimes they wait an awfully long time. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of people who have done important things over the decade in physics, so there's two things that cause these delays sometimes. Mm -hmm. One is, if it's a very speculative idea, it could take a long time to know that it's completely correct. And so you really want to really make 100% sure that quantum dynamics indeed was the correct theory before you awarded the prize. So that causes some delay. And the other part for the delay is the fact that uh, there's a long queue of people that have done very impressive things. Right. Certainly there's been longer delays for Nobel Prizes in physics or in science. And they're still healthy. They got it. <laughs> All's well that ends well. Indeed, indeed. Well, it's, it's really a good thing, and uh, Professor Weiss, I just want to thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox and discussing the Nobel Prize. You're welcome. Just this morning, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for 2004 was awarded to a trio of two Israelis and American for their work on how cells destroy rogue proteins. And joining us right now is Professor Randy Sheckman here from the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology at Berkeley to talk about their work. Uh, Professor Sheckman, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. First of all, could you tell us a little bit about the science for the work that they carried out? Of course. So cells have the task of not only making proteins for function within the cytoplasm or within the nucleus or within membranes of a cell, but they also have to destroy these proteins sometimes when the proteins don't fold properly or when they're mutant or even when the cell simply wants to get rid of a protein that's perfectly normally functioning because it's changing its metabolic pathway. The cell has devised an elaborate machine to tag these proteins for their destruction. And it was this 
key discovery made initially in the early 1960s, first by uh, Hershko, the Israeli uh, who cited as the principal in this uh, trio. Uh, it, it was first his studies that generated the biochemical analysis of the pathway that leads to the destruction of cellular proteins. And what does this mean for disease like cancer? Well, um, there are uh, problems in cancer cells that might be corrected if one could control the action of the prote proteolytic machinery that uh, uh, is responsible for this turnover of cytoplasmic proteins. Indeed, there are some uh, promising agents, uh, chemical agents, that block the action of the machine that responds to the tags that Hirschko Sikanover and Rose discovered uh, a, a machine called the proteasome. And this mm -hmm. proteasome has been targeted by pharmaceutical companies, and there are some promising agents that may that actually show some cancer therapeutic potential. So this is a, an important pathway that impinges on all aspects of cell growth and control. For instance, when a cell enters into a cell division cycle, mm -hmm. uh, it makes a number of uh, decisions throughout the cell cycle to commit to the next step. And at several stages in this path, the molecule that these three discovered called, or, or first uh, tied to this process, a molecule called ubiquitin, this molecule is invoked to initiate the proteolytic destruction of key proteins that key, that, that uh, prime the cell to move from one step to the next. So if you could intervene to block the degradation for instance, of this tagged form of a regulatory molecule, mm -hmm. you might be able to arrest cell division. And so that's a possibility for cancer chemotherapy. So these tags are basically labels, right? Uh, they are themselves little peptides. This molecule called ubiquitin was actually discovered some years earlier as a little peptide, some tens of amino acids in length, that is found everywhere. Uh, yet it was completely obscure what this little peptide could possibly be doing until this team discovered that in the course of degrading molecules in a biochemical reaction, this tag gets attached in a kind of a branch chain linkage to the protein as a prelude to its destruction. It was only with the discovery um, by these three that this tag is kind of a, a way to prime a protein for destruction, that a, a function became ascribed to the ubiquitin molecule. Prior to their analysis, biochemical analysis, no one knew what, what ubiquitin, what, what role ubiquitin had in the cell. But it's pervasive. It's everywhere. As the name implies, it is a ubiquitously expressed protein, um, at least in eukaryotic cells, and mm -hmm. certainly in humans. And that means that it must be doing something important, and indeed it is in all cells that have a nucleus ubiquitin has an essential role. You can't do without it for normal cell metabolism. So when cells mutate, do some of them have a hard time producing this ubiquitin? You can deliberately mutate the ubiquitin protein, and, and that compromises the ability of the cell to grow. But um, one of the key breakthroughs made by Thekinover was to discover that a particular cultured mammalian cell line has a mutation in an enzyme that attaches ubiquitin to to a protein, and when that cell can't attach ubiquitin to protein, the cell dies. So this is a, a lethal mutation. Are there drugs in the pipeline that use this research right now? 
there are promising agents that uh, block the action of the proteasome, which is the machine that responds to the tag protein. So you, what the three who were cited this morning discovered was the was the machinery responsible for adding the tag. But then there's a whole very large discipline of biochemistry uh, that's focused on uh, discovering and uh, understanding the enzyme called the proteasome mm-hmm. that attacks the ubiquitin tagged molecules. And that was not specifically cited this morning. There are a number of other investigators who were uh, studying the structure and function of the proteasome. And that's the target, a very likely target of action of some promising agents. But one could also find potentially find agents that block the ubiquitin tagging event as well. But the problem often is with reactions like this, they are essential for cell, normal cell viability and, uh, uh, and function. And drugs that block the action of the ubiquitin tagging machinery could themselves be toxic. So you have to strike a balance between an inhibitor that is um, benign for normal cell growth but specifically attacks metastatic problems in cells that are cancerous and continue to grow in an unchecked fashion. Are you familiar with any of the three scientists? Yes, I know um, Hershko, and uh, I've met Seekanover. I don't know Erwin Rose. I see. And have you worked with them? No, I haven't worked with them personally, but um, I've met them and uh, heard them speak at scientific symposia. And of the three, I, I consider Hershko to re- be the real pioneer. He's the <laughs> one who sort of labored away. In fact, his, his, the work began when he was a postdoctoral fellow in San Francisco in the early 1960s. Uh, where he made his first observations. And then when he returned to Israel, he started to fractionate the enzymes responsible for this mysterious protein degradation reaction. A reaction, by the way, that requires ATP, which one wouldn't normally, the energy currency of a cell, one wouldn't normally imagine that breaking a protein down should, uh, should consume energy, it should release energy. But in order to regulate this process, to make it, to, to focus it on a particular target, you, impo- you impose an ATP requirement both in the tagging of the protein and its destruction. And it was through this ATP-dependent protein degradation in a biochemical reaction that Hirschko was able to tease out the components that led to the story that um, he is so justly recognized for this morning. Uh, Professor Schechtman, thanks a lot for your comments today. Okay, my pleasure. And you were just listening to this year's coverage of the Nobel Prizes here on Berkeley Grox. In a few moments, something not quite as noble, but certainly prize-worthy. So stay tuned.
so weren't the Nobel Prizes really cool this year? They were extremely noble, which is always uh, the best part of the prize. Indeed, indeed. Uh, as opposed to, you know, those other prizes like the Pulitzer. <laughs> <laughs> those are fine prizes too, but always the Nobel gets my socks in a bunch. What about that other one, which is not quite so noble? Yes, indeed. Well, you know, as, as everyone knows, of course, the Nobel Prize is awarded to uh, achievements in uh, science which, you know, should be reproduced. Right. But the Ig Nobel Prizes, of course, are awarded every year to uh, cannot and should not be reproduced. <laughs> what was the biggest one this year? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I, you know, the one I liked was uh, the invention, uh, the person who got the Ig Nobel Prize for the invention of karaoke. Karaoke? Yes, which was quite fascinating. You know, the world needs more music. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Although, you know, it's quite odd because the, the fellow from Japan there who won it, uh, he hasn't made um, that much money, actually, off the invention, which is... But most people from the Nobel Prizes don't make that much money either, right? That's, this is true. So, in fact, he's uh, perfectly fitting in with the uh, the wonderful inventors and scientists of the Nobel Prizes. Well, I was also reading about the uh, the guy who found the, uh, the fish farting. Fish farting? Yes. <laughs> what was this? <laughs> Apparently, his... Uh, discovery was that fishes can fart. Oh, that's right. Actually, uh, I think we covered that in the show at one point. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, well, this is actually good to know, I guess, if you're ever swimming near a school of fishes <laughs> and you don't have your oxygen mask on. <laughs> or you get some a little extra air, right? <laughs> yeah. It's always tough. And, you know, the one I like also was the uh, the award for the comb-over. The comb-over? The comb-over, I guess, although, I guess, stylize the comb-over to a high degree. Isn't that, like, so 60s, though? <laughs> You know, the comb-over will never go out of style as long as, I think, Ron Popeil and uh, a number of other uh, hair manufacturers are in business. <laughs> I would actually have given it to Rogaine, but Rogaine? that's my, my personal thing. But you don't need chemicals. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, I mean, if we're going down that route, certainly Viagra should have gotten one. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> um, but, yeah, certainly fascinating stuff. And, uh, yeah, check out the Ig Nobel Prizes as well every year, since that's, that's always a lot of fun. All right, well, and then rounding out the uh, last bits of uh, news for this week, uh, there's, of course, a public service announcement. There will be a teach-in regarding stem cells in Proposition 71. Uh, Proposition 71 is, of course, a $3 billion uh, bond measure, which is coming up in the next election. And the Student Society for Stem Cell Research is holding a teach-in tonight from 7 to 8 p.m. at 170 Barrows Hall. And if you'd like more information, you can certainly contact David Bluestone at dbluestone at curesforcalifornia.com if you want more information about that. Hey, thanks a lot, Charles, for that announcement. And now here's Hannah Lecter with the answer to last week's question of the week. Mm, thank you very much there, Frankie. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you know, as I said last week, I enjoy my liver with a side order of fava beans and a nice bottle of Chianti. But the thing that makes it so tasty is the whipped cream. Mmm, but how does that cream come out of the can? Well, it's canister nitrous oxide that makes it all possible to feel the silence of the cream. Thank you, Mr. Lecter. And I'm Forrest Gump with this week's question of the week. What is nitrous oxide? My mama used to say, I need air to stay alive, but nitrous oxide makes me happy, actually. If you know what it is, or think you know what it is, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you might just feel a little happier. And that is all for a special edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie. <laughs>